We're grateful for everyone who supports us. Thanks to all our sponsors. This is an ICRT podcast. Enjoy the show. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, our host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Sean Su. It's great to be back. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing Medigen releasing the price of coronavirus vaccine doses amid debate over government expenditure and as questions over the government's insistence on developing a local vaccine rage on. The Central Epidemic Command Centre moving to cut self-isolation periods for coronavirus positive cases, but questions remaining over voting rights for such individuals. Some local election news concerning the Jai City mayoral race following the death of a candidate there. The Hacker Affairs Council touting the development of an entry system for characters unique to hacker on phones and computers and taiwan and china agreeing on palliative care for giant panda tuan tuan at the taipei zoo but we'll begin with vice president william lai returning to taiwan on thursday evening following a three-day visit to palau lai had been heading a delegation of government officials business representatives of some of taiwan's leading travel agencies and industry associations as well as some baseball stars to the pacific ally prior to leaving palau lai said that he felt Palau's president, Surangal Whips, has high expectations that the Taiwan government will help encourage more Taiwanese tourists to visit Palau as it gradually recovers from the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. And he went on to say it's hoped the number of tourists from Taiwan to Palau will return to its pre-pandemic peak. And unofficial discussions with representatives from Taiwan's leading travel agencies indicate they are confident they can gradually reach that goal. Of course, Taiwan and Palau launched a travel bubble in March of 2021 as both sides sought to encourage travel despite the coronavirus pandemic, but that failed to meet expectations at the time. And figures show that only 2,621 Taiwanese nationals visited Palau in 2021, while only 1,019 travelled there in the first eight months of this year. Now, when focus of the trip wasn't on tourism, the vice president said he was busy stressing that Taiwan and Palau can work together to combat climate change and deepen bilateral exchanges in various fields, including medical care and sports. Now, the trip came a week after Foreign Minister Joseph Wu warned that Taiwan could lose more diplomatic allies as Xi Jinping begins his third term. And according to the foreign minister, Taiwan will face fiercer diplomatic pressure from Beijing. Now Xi has been elected to rule for another five-year term and the government has received some warning signs about the potential loss of diplomatic allies. However, the foreign minister didn't name the diplomatic allies he was referring to. However, he has told lawmakers that the government has foreseen and picked up some warning signs that official relationships between Taiwan and its allies could be the first target of China's coercive measures. He also vowed that the government will make all-out efforts to consolidate the relationships. So, Sean, the vice president pops off to Palau to talk tourism, while the foreign minister warns that, well, China is looking to purloin Taiwan's diplomatic allies. Uh, I think this is going to be a sort of sliding... Um, situation where it's it's really hard to to really compete with China on this, right? Uh, Palau is a very small country with about like 18,000, 20,000 people. And, you know, China can literally send out that many tourists, you know, a second if they really wanted to. So it, compared to what we can do to help Palau, uh, one of the sad parts is that, yes, if they want more tourism, China can literally dump a million people down there. Uh, of course, I don't think the Palau people will be very happy about such a thing, but uh, when it comes to like cash diplomacy, it's much easier. Uh, China has just a higher budget. Uh, so 
you know, I mean, it has been somewhat assuring in a way that uh, the Palau president for the past, you know, uh, two or three years has repeatedly said that he will stick with Taiwan. But, you know, so did all of all our other past allies before they quickly switched recognition. Uh, we just simply can't outbid China or manage tourists the same way that China can with their huge population. I do think it's eventually a losing gamble. You have to strongly consider which allies are useful and which are not. I'm not saying Palau is not entirely useful, but we do also need to focus our energies on, let's say, making sure that more countries have, uh, I mean, put it this way, even Moscow, Russia has a trade office here that acts as their consul. So having more of those might be uh, more largely helpful because the reality is even when Palau makes an, makes noise at the WHA or other places uh, in favor of Taiwan, there's really limited uh, help in that. Whereas when the U.S. throws its weight, it helps a lot more. And of course, Sean, the foreign minister, also said that President Tsai Ing-wen could return to making overseas trips to boost cooperation between Taiwan and its allies beginning next year, but there are currently no plans for such a trip. Uh, yeah, I think it's because Tai is fully focused on the elections right now. But I do believe, yes, um, Tai has been very successful in international diplomacy. And I think that she has had, a, a, at least her, her entourage are, has been carefully chosen to ensure that she generally has a very positive impression. Uh, we can see in the past how successful uh, Tai Ing-wen has been, especially dealing with uh, countries like the United States, um, where, you know, uh, a lot of the past presidential candidates would travel abroad and, uh, you know, the U.S. was sort of like trying to get a handle of the situation and the result was positive. So I do think Tsai would be, you know, of course, it would be great for Tsai to definitely go abroad early in 2023 and really increase Taiwan's profile as she's already done very successfully. I don't think we have to worry too much about Palau, actually. Uh, they probably uh, will end up, if they ever do switch to China, they might be the very last ones to do so. They began diplomatic relations in 1999, five years after becoming uh, independent from a sort of trusteeship from the United States, and they've been very uh, supportive ever since. Travel from mainland China, or the PRC, I should say, to Palau is actually illegal. I don't think that's the case of other ROC <laughs> allies like Paraguay. So I think even China recognizes the, the loyalty of Palau. So that's not the one that I'm looking at. I'm looking at countries more like Honduras and Paraguay, which, you know, you're talking about Honduras with nine and a half million and a president who just recently got elected, who's a bit more of a leftist, according to reports. And then you've got uh, uh, Haiti, 11 million people. Uh, like uh, Sean noted, the, the, the island, other island republics are generally quite small. The, the largest one, I think, the Marshall Islands has 62,000. Otherwise, it's all in like the 10 to 20,000 category. But we do still have this one problem with, uh, for example, I, I don't even know how to pronounce it correctly, Nauru, I think it is, uh, an island nation. And in 2011, WikiLeaks relieved that, uh, re revealed rather that Taiwan was paying monthly stipends to these countries for their support. And that's something that should raise questions as to uh, whether it's, it's, it's worth it for, for a country like this. We're talking about a place with 10,800 people. So my city here of Kaohsiung, Fengshan, one district, you know, has over 400,000. So these allies are very useful in maintaining, depending on your perspective, either the fiction or the reality of the Republic of China. So I understand why they are uh, important to, to some people. 
but we probably need to, as Sean said, start looking forward to a future where we probably will be left with very few. Um, I would say that uh, it wouldn't be shocking to me that by 2027 we're down to like somewhere around five. And of course, Michael, there's been talk in the United States in recent months and years of basically Washington, I wouldn't use the word threatening, might be a bit strong, but having words in the ear of certain countries if they are considering switching to Beijing. Very much so. Um, I believe Palau got a recommendation or some sort of special letter from the United States uh, not that long ago thanking them or or praising them for their continued support. And I think that's the case with uh, a lot of the other places that uh, had some significant American support back in the day. But um, when you're looking at Honduras or Paraguay uh, or Haiti, for that matter, these ones uh, become a lot trickier uh, because I don't know how much pull the United States has on, uh, say, for example, Paraguay. No, I t- totally agree. And in fact, um, you know, uh, among their populace, uh, as all you need is a politician that uh, gets elected uh, with anti sort of U.S. sentiments. And there are certain reasons why these countries might not exactly like the United States. So, yeah, I do agree that uh, Palau is probably the last uh, country to actually, uh, you know, uh, do recognize Taiwan, uh, particularly because it's such a close U.S. ally. But we don't have that luxury for so many other nations. Um, I do believe that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, MOFA, is definitely thinking about behind the scenes um, how to deal in a sort of uh, post-cash diplomacy uh, world. And uh, some might even bring up the idea, like, what's the point of MOFA if we only have five allies down the line? Actually, uh, it's those in um, un, un, not unofficial sort of, I, I, I'm, it's not the best word, but sort of unofficial relations that uh, has helped us the most these days. And that includes the United States. And Sean, where do you, if, if President Tsai is going to make a, a first trip since the coronavirus pandemic overseas next year, where should she begin this trip? <laughs> Uh, personally, uh, it really depends on which countries will find it uh, politically allowable. Uh, for example, um, in a far-off fantasy land, it might be the United States. But again, that's a far-off fantasy land. Yeah, go to the U.S. for a transit stop and then swing by Honduras and Paraguay. Yep. And moving on now, and local pharmaceutical company Medigen on Tuesday of this week released much-demanded data concerning the costs paid by the government for its coronavirus vaccines, which came in at an average price of 840 NT per dose. Now, according to Medigen, it signed a 4.03 billion NT contract with the Centres for Disease Control for 5 million doses, of which 200,000 doses were donations for the government's help in funding the vaccine's development. And Medigen said it used the 4.8 million doses that were paid for to calculate the average price of each dose. Now, the statement comes as the government has been under pressure to explain why the total contracted purchase price for the Medigen vaccine was 4.03 billion NT, while the company's financial statements showed net receipts of only 3.62 billion NT. That has led to claims of corruption. Ha! <laughs> Big surprise there. But Medigen says the difference is the result of a value-added tax and penalties for delayed delivery of partial batches. Now, Central Epidemic 
Command Centre head Victor Wong says the Medigen vaccine was cheaper than the Moderna or the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines purchased from abroad, but he has not disclosed the prices of which those two imported vaccines were paid for, basically. However, opposition parties have been claiming that the Medigen's disclosure was solely aimed at helping the DPP's Taipei mayoral candidate, former Health Minister Chen Shih-chung. Now, Chen has been criticised for his handling of vaccine purchases and support for Medigen over the purchase of more vaccines from overseas. Now, the Medigen vaccine is currently only accepted in some 10 countries and territories as proof of vaccination, and the government is now offering individuals who received its vaccination shots and need to travel abroad to get a, well, shots of Again, free World Health Organization approved vaccines, all of which has left the government facing claims that its once lofty talk of a local coronavirus vaccine was little but hot air or empty vial, as I might say, Michael. Yeah, um, I know you've had plenty of people on your show. I've been uh, on with uh, uh, people who have criticized this vaccine uh, from the very start and thought it was a bad idea because uh, I guess in their view it was unnecessary for the most part. But I have to admit that I uh, kind of uh, was rooting for them because I was sort of uh, maybe hoping against hope that it would turn out to be a hit and then that would be sort of a promotional effect that could boost Taiwan on the international stage. You know, it would have been uh, cool to uh, have countries all around the world saying that they'd been vaccinated with something developed in Taiwan, but perhaps I was, you know, uh, over-enthusiastic. So the whole situation and the whole uh, everything that uh, I've read about it uh, so far has has left me, I guess, disappointed. And I think Sean has some comments about how some of these things are overblown. But it does seem that if you are going to be fair about it in the end, this whole idea does appear to have been a mistake and a rather costly one at that. Uh, personally, I think that Taiwan, as a strategic uh, measure, needs to develop its ability to build uh, vaccines and uh, you know improve its medical technologies. The reality is, over uh, the past half decade, uh, China has secured a lot of exclusivity contracts that prevents a lot of new medicines from actually ending up in the United States. As you know, uh, the, the recent uh, pandemic has shown us that there was so much trouble uh, procuring certain vaccines simply because Chinese companies were able to uh, put Taiwan as a territory and therefore having exclusivity over it. So down the line, we will have to develop our own ability. You know, we shouldn't just say like, ah, it's inconvenient for me. Uh, you know why? Because I might have to get more shots just to travel abroad or I might have to get a free PCR test. Oh, you know, woe is me. Yes, but Taiwan needs that ability to build its own. And, you know, then there's the complaint and the conspiracy theories. Ah, it must be corruption. They're trying to make money. You know, the KMT has been running with that for a long time. And then they, they point to countries like the United States and they say, ah, oh, okay, look at the United States. They, you know, they have 14 times the population of us. They brought, you know, like 50 times the vaccines that we did. How come they get a lower price than we do? It's kind of like buying a television at, at a supermarket and then saying like, you know, I brought this TV. How come I'm not getting the manufacturer's factory price for it? You know, the lowest price ever. I mean, it's, it's, it's in Taiwan, TVs are more expensive because we brought less. Why don't we compare to a nation that uh, has roughly the same population as Taiwan and has been making their own vaccines, like their own metagen and what have you? That's Australia, right? Guess how much Australia is paying per dose? Not just 840 NT. They're paying about 50 to $60 per dose. 
fifty to sixty dollars. And then later, of course, they say they they would have uh, smaller doses for about thirty-two to thirty-seven U.S. dollars. That's over a thousand NT to two thousand NT. Now imagine if these doses were two thousand NT. Taiwanese people would throw right. Sorry, I'm going in a rant here, but as a country where the price of tissue paper makes the news. The rising price, you know, they'll, they'll say something like, "Okay, you know what? Tissue paper this week for a batch of ten has increased by five NT." You know, the world is collapsing, the economy is ending. You know, the hyperbolic nature of this is really nasty, but it works. You know, uh, I'm sure the KMT strategy headquarters has figured out that hey, as long as we pretend that these vaccines are way too expensive. Way too expensive that you know we can you know strike a chord with the Taiwanese people. So they compare with countries that are like Japan that brought you know easily ten times more the vaccines that we do. So for context, some of the most expensive countries, uh, expensive vaccines, you know, let's say the price of Medi- uh, of Moderna in 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 Africa is one of the highest among the world. We're talking about like thirty five dollars a dose, and why is that? It's because they can't buy enough. Uh, 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 they don't. They they buy in small quantities, and then you compare that to the United States, which has purchased some of the highest quantities. Of course, the United States gets it cheaper per dose. It's just the natural law of things, right?、Um, so I do think、um, I'm really sad about how this was reported in much of the rest of the media, because they fail to just use a tool called Google to actually search for countries with similar populations, such as Australia, and checking how much they're paying. Instead, they chose countries like Japan and. The United States for maximum sensationalism, and speaking of which, the United States, for example, for Moderna, didn't even pay the smallest amount、uh, back in like、uh, this summer. At some points, the United States was paying eight hundred and fifty-five NT, you know,、uh, per dose. But Sean, don't you think that perhaps the government should have done a better job with explaining the point that you just made, saying that this is to get us ready for the future or something? I, I didn't read a lot of that or hear a lot of that. It was more of a, you know we're we're going to come and and save the day, so I guess they they this is a, a self inflicted wound as I see it. You're one hundred percent about、uh, correct about that. Unfortunately, with、um, you know the Taiwan local news cycle, it's really difficult to you know explain something that takes longer than twenty seconds or ten seconds.、Uh, I do think、um, that the DPP could do a better job, uh, uh, or, or you know、um, this ECC could do a better job in explaining context. But in the end, it just takes so long to argue.、Um, even the KMT recently, there was a member、uh, that said that if we pay more than One NT per dose—it's too much. <laughs> you know, I mean,、uh, the reality is、um, of the vaccines that are working, that are well vetted, and what have you—that's much lower than you know anyone is paying. Of course, I mean, if we can if we can get these vaccines for less than one NT, that would be great. But the reality is they're not that cheap. They require a lot of money to develop. They require special shipping methods.、Um, so you know, this kind of politicking is really disgusting. I feel I draw. I personally draw a red line when it comes to a pandemic,、uh, you know, among other places. But you know, I just feel it's disgusting that for political expediency,、um, they're playing games with this. And of course, Sean, the government is always hoping to. Obviously, Moderna is going to open an office in Taiwan, so obviously the government may be hoping that the Moderna vaccine could one day be produced here. 
Uh, yes, I believe. And by the way, I need to point out that Australia, I believe, uh, if memory serves, actually was able to manufacture Moderna locally, and yet they're still paying this kind of pricing. So I really feel that it's for such a complicated thing. Uh, I think I think the CEC needs to come out and say, like, hey, uh, there's some side benefits. Uh, you know, we can make Taiwan into an independent uh, uh, area of great, not just, you know, I mean, Taiwan already produces a lot of uh, medicines, but we need to do better. We need to increase. It needs to be treated like some sort of a race thing. Um, and that, to be honest, they did not pay too much for it at all. Uh, all this speculation is really damaging for Taiwan's future, I believe. Uh, I don't know much what much more to add. It looks like this the messaging that came out of this and the, the failure of, of, of how it was presented is uh, going to end up being a factor that may uh, cost, in fact, uh, I would bet, is going to cost the DPP any chance of winning in Taipei City because their candidate is so closely tied to all of this, uh, just uh, depending on your perspective, uh, nonsense or uh, controversy. Allegations and innuendo. Anyway, staying with coronavirus and local election-related news, well, the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Wednesday announced that it will be cutting the self-isolation period for people who test positive for the virus from November the 14th. That move means people with the coronavirus will only have to isolate for five days instead of the current seven, and the self-health management protocol will no longer be required if they test negative after the five-day period. Those who do test positive, however, at the end of the five-day period will still have to observe the self-health management protocols for a maximum of seven days. Now, the new policy has yet another fancy name. It's called the 5 plus N policy, in keeping with all the previous such policies. Now, although the move will likely make people who see a speedy recovery very happy, it's not making everyone as happy, as the Epidemic Command Centre has been stressing that it has yet to decide if people who have the disease will be able to cast their ballots in the November 26 local elections. Now, the Central Election Commission has said that there's no legal basis for proposals to allow people with the coronavirus who are in isolation to cast absentee ballots or vote at designating polling stations at certain times. Now, according to the Commission, methods used in Japan and South Korea to allow such patients to vote, such as voting by mail or at a specially designated time or polling station, are not permitted under Taiwan's current election laws. And it's also stressing that Basically, it can't do anything about it, which has made opposition lawmakers rather angry as they've been urging the government to allow people in coronavirus isolation to actually cast their ballots, arguing that hundreds of thousands of people will be unable to vote because of recent infections. So, Sean, should people with the coronavirus be allowed to vote at certain times? Obviously, absentee voting, a big issue. But at certain times, would there be a problem with that? But the Central Central Election Commission, rather, seems to think there is. Well, this is kind of complicated because I personally I personally do not believe the CECC should have the power to dictate that sort of thing. So it will require the Central Election Commission uh, to change laws to allow such a thing. Is it possible to change the laws before that, given how Taiwan moves in politics and how the door slowly opens, as we mentioned before? Uh, it's very hard for that to happen. Uh, I do feel that there will be certain people that will miss out on it. Do I believe it will be, as you know, the KMT has said, hundreds of thousands of people? 
people not being allowed to vote, uh, I, I don't think it's going to be that high. However, one thing that I do worry about is that, you know, if the CCC, you know, as a precedent uh, uh, ever is given that kind of power, what happens if um, the next pandemic comes and you have uh, a different party in power, you know, and that might u- they, that actually might use that uh, uh, for for negative effect. So it's kind of it's kind of tricky right now. I think um, I do believe that we have to follow procedure and laws in some aspect. Uh, I do. I personally would have liked uh, for them to be able to vote uh, at designated times so that way they could clean up and everything. But then that also affects other voters. Uh, maybe some places they can cordon off, some places they can't. I know for a fact because I'm registered in Kaohsiung that my election place uh, will have some difficulty because of the the way the place is designed to cordon off a certain section just for, uh, uh, you know, uh, COVID-positive people. And then there's the whole problem of transportation. Will they take public transportation to go vote? Will they ride on their scooters? You know, uh, so it's it's really, uh, it's some things just don't have a simple solution, and this is one of them. That said, uh, uh, you know, Taiwan has had uh, relatively high numbers, uh, so... You know, we're talking about like you know twenty, thirty thousand, and so forth uh, a day. So, uh, uh, will that make a huge difference? I I don't know. Uh, uh, but let me ask uh, the new law, right? That says that they're cutting the isolation period. Doesn't that mean that there's going to be already tons of people walking around who are uh, perhaps uh, still testing positive, but are are, are considered non-infectious uh, already? Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and so in, in a way, they, they're already trying their best to handle this, right? Um, but, you know, if if the law says that you cannot, you know, change, you know, certain aspects, unlike Japan or South Korea, then I, I just don't see how easy it is for them to do that in such a short period. Now, could this have been thought of uh, much earlier than that? Well, <laughs> back They had then, plenty of time to think about this, don't yes. you think? <laughs> yes, yes, they, indeed they did. And uh, But I just don't think they had a viable plan, uh, and they were unable to come up with a viable plan. Considering that you can pay your taxes at uh, a convenience store in Taiwan <laughs> and how well many other things work uh, from um, any local corner store, I just find it quite shocking that uh, the government couldn't come up with a plan that made sense for this. I know absentee balloting is something we've been debating for many years, and uh, I personally am in favor of it. I know that there are issues uh, that have to be resolved, but I'm I'm very disappointed that they didn't have a meeting and just hammer this out uh, like six months ago. Well, since 7-Eleven does everything anyway, we might as well try to figure out a plan so we can now vote at our convenience yeah, stores. Seriously. <laughs> I'm actually not even half joking. <laughs> yeah, seriously. On an Ibon machine, so you could just uh, uh, tally in your vote. You get your fingerprint on there, get an eye scan or something, and boom, you're good. Yeah, and buy concert tickets, pay taxes, and also, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get a rent a mobile power uh, charger at the same time. But of course, Michael, I mean, obviously, so many thousands of people getting the coronavirus, and of course, there's more thousands of people probably getting it and not telling people they've got it. Exactly. I mean, what's the point of stopping people from voting? Exactly. That was my earlier question. It's like, I don't see the logic here. There's going to be people in that line in front of you and behind you who are infected, who are infectious, who are recovering, who are uh, unknowingly sick. And it's just, we've already let it go. Uh, The situation has changed. We've now gone into a post-COVID society where uh, you, you just don't know. 
So I saw an article where somebody was going off on how, well, we don't have to worry too much about this because uh, the most uh, largest contingent of people getting sick these days are, are teenagers and younger people, and they can't vote anyway. But it just, none of this <laughs> makes sense to me. It's like, wear your mask, stay X amount of meters away from each other and go in one by one. How is that different from when I line up again at 7-Eleven to pay my taxes? I, I personally feel that um, I don't think the CECC is allowed to say uh, what they're actually, you know, but what the implication there is, is to just basically don't tell anybody, mask up, go there and do your vote. And then you could tell the CECC that you need to quarantine. <laughs> They're not going to void people's votes, are they? No, they're not. So, so I feel, I feel that's really, really the 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 really subtle implication, Uh, and a lot of people are doing that already. As as you pointed out, you know, there are plenty of people that are not reporting. Heck, I just came back from abroad after being gone for two months. Uh, They told us to, you know, provide these tests regularly, and I took them. But I noticed the tests they give us don't have a serial number uh, next to the tests. So if I took a picture and I submitted it. They would have no idea if I'm not taking the same. Exactly. My daughter was just asked to do that as well. And I took her to the hospital a couple of weeks ago, and they said, did you uh, give her a test? And I pulled it out of my pocket, and I said, yes. And they're like, oh, you should have written the date on that so that we know it would. I'm like, how do you prove that I, I could have written any date on it? That could be anyone's test. Unless I videotape the actual procedure of me <laughs> doing the test or giving her the test, or put a newspaper next to it like some hostage, you know, there's really no proof of any of this. So it's, it's, it's over. We have to sort of just accept this and uh, accept that there's going to still be quite a few people who are going to still get this, and it'll probably still be uh, something that we have to deal with uh, over 2023. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and in some of the latest local election news to have made headlines over the past several days, the Central Election Commission on Thursday announced that it will relaunch the Jai City mayoral election following the death of independent candidate Huang Xiaotong. Now, registration will now open once again for candidates on November the 8th through November the 12th. The ballot numbers will be drawn on November the 29th and the election has been rescheduled for December the 18th. Now, Huang passed away on Wednesday of this week, prompting officials to temporarily put a stop to the election there. That move was based on Article 30 of the Civil Servants Election and Recall Act, which is also known as the Anti-Assassination Clause. Now, Huang was not assassinated, but he died of a heart attack. However, the clause requires the National Election Commission to terminate a mayoral or county magistrate election and restart the electoral process if a candidate dies at least one day before election day. Now, the decision to cancel the ballot was condemned by both the Jai City KMT Mayor Huang Minhui, who is seeking re-election, as well as the DPP's Li Chun Yi, who argued that the delay will cost their respective campaigns funding for both labour and resources. Now, the KMT Legislative Caucus also urged the Election Commission not to delay the ballot, with Caucus Whip William Tsung going on to say that many saw it as being, well... He claimed it was interference by the DPP, which I, I think comments there by the DPP and the KMT about poor Mr. Huang's death were a bit too much when they could have shown, put their hands up and gone, no problem. 
Yeah, I, I think this this whole entire thing where it's like, ah, it's a, it's a DPP plot for everything has been a recurring conspiracy theme that's been gone too long. But let's let's step aside from that and let's talk about what happens if a very evil uh, political strategist decides, you know what, for every election that I might lose, why don't we drain the funds of our competitor by simply going to a, a hospice and registering a dozen people who are on the verge of passing? Uh, I feel like uh, in this way, the, the election laws need to be updated. You know, this is, you know, there's so many candidates running for all sorts of positions these days, especially in, uh, you know, like Taipei for Taipei mayor. There's so many candidates that all you have to do to disrupt the race is just having, you know, somebody very old there. Uh, uh, about to die. Uh, I read reports that there's been, what, six deaths so far? Six candidates have di- passed away, uh, uh, um, you know, before the polling day, the vast majority due to old age. Um, let's Putting aside the fact that we have too many candidates that are really old, we really do need younger representation. I, I feel this is this is disruptive indeed. You know, I mean, if you're a party that has spent so much money and you're leading the races, all of a sudden you drained all your funds and then someone passes a few weeks before the election, you have to start over again. Yeah, um, the clause that you cited there was the anti-assassination clause. And if it were an assassination, I guess I could completely get behind the government's policy here. But if you look at pretty much every other major democracy that I've looked at, they put this sort of uh, situation onto the party itself. So I don't know how that would work in the case of an independent, but if it's um, uh, in the United States, for example, and a candidate dies, then it falls on the, the party to decide who the replacement is before the election. The rules are different, of course, if it's after the election or before an inauguration for a president or everything, you know, these, but uh, it, it I don't see why the party or the people themselves can't figure out who their replacement would be. It's as Sean noted, you you raise some some big problems because should the election turn out to favor a particular party one way and they've rescheduled this other one section, it, it brings a whole new dynamic to the race because uh, perhaps we're we're talking about control over this. It's just not. Unless it's 100% necessary, like an assassination in a presidential race, for example, uh, just let the local candidates figure it out for themselves. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, there's many elections where, let's say, you know, the, the husband passes away, so the wife or, or brother, you know, decides to continue running. You know, th- that, that works just fine. Um, you know, if the people decide they want to vote for you, it's there, you know, it's a choice, right? Yes, but to end this election, it's, it feels like a, 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 a sort of backdoor, and it's only going to be used more. And I, I just don't think it's quite fair uh, for everyone involved. And moving on now, the Hacker Affairs Council this week said work on a special code entry system for characters unique to Hacker on smartphones and computers will have been completed and be up and running by July of next year. Now, according to Hacker Affairs Council Deputy Minister John Kung Chow, the entry code system has been under development for three years and the system's inception stems from calls by language experts who have been urging the government to introduce such a system for both Hacker and Hoklo, or Taiwanese as it's also known, for an entry system for those languages 
pages for the National Development Council's Public Policy Network Participation Platform. Now, the Hacker Affairs Council Deputy Minister says his office has now been working with the National Taiwan Normal University and the National Yangming Jiaotong University, as well as consulting with language experts and hacker language teachers to compile idioms and phrases, while some 200 characters unique to the hacker language have now been added to the Windows operating system. Now, news of the status of the hacker language code entry system comes after language experts here recently questioned the accuracy of Hoklo English Artificial Intelligence, powered by translation software, which was developed by Meta Platforms. So, Sean, you're a bit of a tech dude. What about this? You could you now as soon enter your hacker language on your smartphone and computer. I actually think these things are very much needed. Uh, uh, thankfully, hacker is not the only language that requires this sort of thing. Um, and it, it, the, the reason is because simply if you cannot input it, you know, eventually it dies and people are stuck to their cell phones these days. You know, when you walk around Taiwan, you know, you'll see people uh, sort of in the prayer position holding their phones up to their faces. So I do think it's a welcome move in order, you know, to develop extra keyboards. I do really hope that they can work with people like Google and Apple in order to implement these uh, keyboards to make it naturally uh, involved instead of having to download a side key, uh, an extra keyboard for that. And thankfully, uh, as you mentioned, uh, even Meta seemed open to it as Meta uh, recently used uh, artificial intelligence to um, you know, develop. Uh, uh, and I read the paper. The fascinating part is, unlike most people's uh, assumptions, uh, they did not translate to a written language first and then translate back to another language. So Meta did directly do it, do like a speech-to-speech translations. Of course, it's, you know, translated to a series of numbers and what have you, but it's not to a written language. And I do feel that even though it's not a perfect translation, that's not bad because, it, you know, they, they use dramas and, and a subset of dramas in order to translate. And those dramas already had subtitles. And by the way, it was unassisted. That's the crazy part. So the fact that it's actually even uh, uh, somewhat accurate or pretty accurate is amazing. Um, it means that, you know, tons of languages out there will be able to be updated. However, I got to make I got I to gotta point out something. Um, Unsupervised learning of uh, Taiwanese languages from dramas is actually a great achievement in AI development, uh, and and I do feel that uh, uh, you know because it was unsupervised learning. That's the emphasis. Um, they didn't have a human to correct all these things yet. It's early days, but I'm very excited. Uh, I would love to be able to talk to grandparents and you know obasans in the road, <laughs> you know uh, all sorts of languages that I wasn't able to before by using this. Yeah, um, despite having a, a wife and in-laws who are all Hakka and speak Hakka, I'm uh, on the record with a controversial Hakka stance where I personally don't think that uh, there's a necessity for it being forced on students in school unless they're in an area where they are majority Hakka. And I think that uh, a lot of the Hakka promotion, in quotation marks, is mostly political uh, stunts and uh, just unnecessary. I've gotten a lot of flack from this from uh, Taipei-based bloggers, uh, foreign bloggers, who think that I'm anti-languages, but uh, that's not the case. The thing that I'm happy about, though, with this is that this is something that is actually going to be useful. So instead of forcing my daughter to do four hours every week of Hakka, which she will not learn, and also in the year, I don't know, 2035, on her resume, it's not going to be something that's going to uh, be a, a great draw. 
but this is something that actually is going to help save the language and move forward. So I'm glad to finally see actual, genuine, sensible moves for Hakka rather than just uh, ceremonial or uh, kind of just uh, meaningless uh, platitudes. And Aboriginal languages, Sean? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's to me for the the tech side, it's it's really exciting um, because we can finally be able to you know communicate more throughout the world, and we could listen to these languages. For me, you know, um, it it just it just feels like a lot of fun, and I do think that kind of focus is like uh like michael said it's a lot more tangible uh in terms of forcing students to let's say learn aboriginal languages in classrooms and so forth uh, i question the budget of that and, and whether that is necessarily the best way to preserve a language um better things would be if you know like i said pop culture other things do is what really helps you know uh, a language survive and grow uh you know if it's popular to speak that language if it's popular to borrow words from that language those things do far more in keeping that language alive and in this case by having technological compatibility yeah that's going to be fantastic I, it would be cool if this was uh, good enough to the point where uh, a Hakka television program, for example, could be AI translated immediately into English so that I could watch it even if I don't necessarily speak the language. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy that this is moving forward with, with technology. That's it, a, a good move. And Sean, could it do away with the people who have to wade through television shows and translate the scripts to pop on the bottom of the screen? <laughs> well, it could eventually, you know. I mean, again, this it's the unsupervised part, which is so amazing. Yes, there's going to be certain parts that don't quite match up, uh, and then there will you will always still need some human to come in and fix it. But the fact that this went so far, I tried the app. I mean, some people complained and they said that, oh, yeah, it was a little bit slow, but don't forget it was getting hammered. Uh, but I, I tried it. It was loading really fast for me, and I thought it was really good. Uh, uh, my partner does speak uh, Hakka. Uh, so she was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's not bad. It's pretty darn good. And that in itself brings a lot of hope to the rest of the world for all sorts of languages, you know. Just yeah, and Sean, don't forget, uh, your uh, partner, I'm, I'm assuming, is from the north. So then we would have two different versions of Hakka. And then even in the Liu Dui area of Kaohsiung, where we have six uh, camps, which means Liu Dui, each one of them speaks a, a variation with a different accent. So it's going to be a challenge. And that is the case with Taiwanese as well. There are uh, there's slang and uh, accents and all kinds of stuff. Just on this one tiny island, there's so much uh, variety uh, in these languages. So uh, it's, it's going to be tough, but at, at least we've taken some good first steps. Oh, yeah. And, and this actually has wider implications, not only for uh, lesser known languages, but better known languages. For example, um, if you're tr translating English from different parts of, uh, you know, Great Britain, for example, uh, there's so many different accents there that they have trouble. So eventually, this actually has wider implications in this whole entire AI translation field. And, and as you pointed out correctly, Michael, that yes, there will be in the future more variations of, of different accents and therefore better translations of that and that's one of 
in an indirectly one of the great innovations or, 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 or unexpected uh, results of this. AI will get better when it gets more samples. Um, actually, my partner is from the South, but you're oh. correct. There's definitely so many uh, 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 variations. So it's, it's kind of funny that people think, uh, um, I, I would say for our listeners, it's kind of like imagine a very heavy Southern accent uh, versus, um, you know, somebody from, let's say, Northern uh, Minnesota, you know, the English will vary a lot. Some of the key phrases they use will vary a lot. So it'll be cool if Google Translate and Meta become smart enough so they understand what I mean by this is a big W. And before we go from this week, officials from Taiwan and China reached an agreement earlier this week. Now, the agreement didn't centre on cross-strait peace, love and understanding, but instead focused on the moving of giant panda Tuan Tuan to palliative care. Now, the Taipei Zoo announced that the 18-year-old panda had been moved into a care place on October the 26th. According to the zoo, it made that decision after the panda's condition further deteriorated following a series of seizures in late August. Now, two panda experts from China arrived in Taiwan this week to examined Tuan Tuan and agreed with the decision made by the Taipei Zoo to provide palliative care. Now, Tuan Tuan has already reached the age of between 15 and 20 years of panda lifestyle ages, although they frequently live up to 30 years in captivity, apparently. Now, the zoo says it will continue to own the panda after he passes and will keep the panda's skeleton, fur, stem cells and sperm for research or teaching purposes. So, Tuan Tuan is not doing well, Sean. Yeah, well, it is an old panda, right? Um, I, I personally, for me, I, I wonder why don't we do this for things like the Formosan bear or all these other indigenous animals that we have in Taiwan. And the reason I say so is because, you know, um, with all due respect to uh, Tuan Tuan, uh, the reality is that um, Tuan Tuan did not really attract as many people as Taipei Zoo had hoped. Uh, after the first year, you know, visitors, visitor numbers basically kind of dropped off. So that's a lot of money. We spent 30 million NT to build their enclosures. We spend uh, 3 million NT uh, every year just for the upkeep of the bears alone. When plus, when you add human labor, that's 5 million NT for not a lot of visitors. So, I don't know. I mean, the detractors for, uh, uh, you know, panda diplomacy and so forth, sorry to bring politics into this, uh, pointing out that, you know, uh, they probably wouldn't attract as many, might not be worth it, is, is, is something to be seen. The reality is Taiwan's really hot. You know, it's not exactly the best, wet and hot, it's not exactly the best uh, environment for these pandas. So, I feel the fact that uh, Tuan Tuan's 18 years of age is already pretty good. I do understand that, uh, you know, sometimes they could live as long as 35 in captivity. But, you know, we should look at uh, uh, how it is. And it is what it is, right? I mean, just another panda. (laughs) Yeah, I pretty much am on the same page with Sean. Although um, I think it is important to have these, uh, you know, ping pong diplomacy or whatever you want to call it, panda diplomacy, these these small little avenues where we're still able to have contact with the other side despite politics or despite who's in charge. So this is an example of China and Taiwan, you know, coming and working together. And it's, it's better than nothing. I know it's not significant in any real meaningful way, but uh, we, we need these, these small little connections that even in the most uh, hostile of environments that there's still some contact and conversation between the two sides. It's sad that it has to involve the, the death of a panda, but um, yeah, as Sean noted, uh, he seems to have lived a, a reasonably healthy or long life for a panda. 
And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. <laughs> thanks. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.